Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Hello to everyone and thanks for tuning in. This is Beyond Governance Show at 101.9 High FM. And my name is Nimrod Kimbede. As always, I am pleased to share this space with you as we unpack complex and complicated social and economic issues facing the country and the continent at large. This is a very cold winter as we know it. And I would like to implore all the beloved listeners of the show to reach out to the needy by donating blankets, clothes, food parcel to inspire hope to those who are destitute. We all know that any gesture of giving makes a big difference to those that are needy. In the show, we, we pride ourselves in bringing you the beloved listener thought leaders who sharpen our horizons and perspective by illuminating some of the blind spots as we all have blind spots in our views. These conversations are always in the context of national economic policies and intercontinental free trade agreement area. The implication is that leaders that are focused in their, in their economic revival missions are able to see trees from the forest because they are sharply focused and all easily disrupted by noises that, that makes them a bigger plan, that makes them to miss a bigger picture. There are always bigger issues to handle or to tackle. Here I'm talking about successful conditions for crowding in investment, both at the national and international level. If you miss any of our previous show, not to worry, visit our website, which is www.hrfm.com. Look for Beyond Governance and download podcasts. Share your views with us through our SMS line, Telegram, or Twitter handle. On SMS line, we are found us at 34519. As we kick off the show, it is proper to acknowledge the technical producer, Vusi Masinga. Thank you for doing a selling with my good sir, and setting the scene for today's conversation. We all yearn foreign direct investments to grow economics. However, we often miss the ultra-competitiveness spaces. This level of competitiveness is underpinned by country risk, which in my refer to the economic, political, and business risk that are unique, and that may or may not yield the results that a country desperately needs. In making sense of this investment landscape, I'm joined by Somalobi, as well as retired uh, Major General Ishola Williams from Nigeria. The two colleagues have traveled extensively in the continent, indeed throughout the world, and they will be sharing with us their own observation. The gist of our conversation is going to be, what are those success conditions for attracting foreign direct investments? Without any waste of time, let me take this opportunity once again to welcome colleagues, Prasol Malong, who's no longer a stranger to the show, and of course, and retired General Ishola Williams. Gentlemen, good morning. Yeah, good morning. How are you today? Thank you very much, General. Good morning, my good doctor, and good morning to General Williams. Thank you very much. Before we start, General, maybe I could just start with you. Who General Ishola Williams is from Nigeria? I'm sure the listeners will be quite keen to know and hear that uh, we, we are linking up with yourselves all the way from Nigeria. Thank you very much for inviting me, Dr. Mbele. And um, even with the short notice, I realize how important subject or the topic that you have chosen for this morning discussion. Every single day, everybody keeps talking about, you know, how we can grow economically 
most people tend to believe, including politicians too, that we've got to attract foreign direct investment. Experience and studies have shown that the emphasis is not on the right side. The emphasis should be on attracting domestic direct investment in two ways. How can the public itself, through the politicians who are in power, invest in areas of economy, either with the private sector of the country or without the private sector of the country? And most countries, even the United States, Germany or everywhere, that is what we need to consider at the beginning of the discussion. And it is very, very important. What can we do on our own internally to be able to show the people in the outside world that if you come in there, we are prepared for you. And I'm sure that's what you are looking for in this discussion. I hope I'm right. Thank you very much, General, for giving us a shot in the arm in terms of sharing your perspective on how to take the process forward. Um, Brasol, if you may come through here, we have noted that Africa development uh, is unequal. We have countries that are mushrooming and we have got countries that are lagging behind. For an example, in, in Africa, I read a report from the uh, Investor Monitor the other day, and it points out that there are about five countries in the continent that are progressing exceptionally well, uh, growing with, with, the digit, with growing, you know, uh, the, the, the economy almost 67%, if you may. And those countries are Egypt, Botswana, Ghana, and Morocco. Before you come in, let's take a break. We'll come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. This is Beyond Governance, and I'm joined by retired General Ishola E. Williams from Nigeria, as well as Sol Malobi. Before we took that short break, I had wanted to ask uh, Sol Malobi to give us insight based on the investor monitor, amongst other research engines or research uh, institute, that there are five countries in the in the continent that are perceived to be doing relatively well. I've mentioned Egypt, I've mentioned Botswana, I've mentioned Ghana, I've mentioned Morocco. So these are countries that are perceived to be doing exceptionally well. And Brussels, as a point of departure, what would you consider as the key and fundamental indicators of where these countries are or are performing in their respective economies? Perhaps let me start by saying um, Africa is a virgin territory and we are the fastest growing continent in the whole world. But unfortunately, we only get 5.2% of the global FDI. It is still very good because it's it's an improvement from 2020's 4.1%. But having said this, um, we should also remember that FDI is also linked to investor perceptions of a location. And historically, we know that Africa has always been regarded by the West as a dark continent, especially after Joseph Conrad uh, published his seminal work titled The Heart of Darkness. 
but I would say that right now, especially with us integrating into one common market, all continents are interested in Africa and they have vested interest in retaining their historical and traditional investments on the continent, but also at the same time to increase them. Speaking from a marketing perspective, I will talk more about perceptions of the continent because marketing is about perception management. But I'm also comfortable that uh, our veteran, um, General William, will talk about the hard facts. So let me quote what Socrates said. He said, the way to gain a reputation is to endeavor to be what you desire to appear. This basically means that we need to manage how people perceive us as a continent so that those people could have confidence in us. Perhaps let me also thank and congratulate Egypt for having been the biggest um, beneficiary of FDI into the continent last year. And this enabled it to overtake South Africa to become the second biggest economy on the continent after Nigeria. So as we speak, South Africa is now the third. This speaks to what the general was saying earlier on, to say that uh, economic growth is to a large extent dependent on how much foreign direct investment are you attracting. So then the responsibility falls squarely on our leaders across the continent to ensure that they come up with the kind of reforms that will appear to be attractive to foreign investors. So that if they were, they have to choose between one continent comparing it to Africa, then they should find us to be more attractive. And this speaks to, in the research that I did uh, previously, the rule of law is number one to investors, that in the country they are visiting, uh, there has to be a rule of law. They also look at political stability. And Africa was doing very well through the African Union in silencing the guns uh, across the continent. But we also know uh, in the past few years, uh, there, there have been problems uh, in West Africa, in Sudan, and these problems basically um, took us back to those days when the military dictatorships emerged on the continent and assuming power through what the African Union refers to as the unconstitutional transfer of power. But fortunately, the AU acted very strongly against them and suspended from their membership. But all in all, uh, besides the rule of law, they are looking, investors are looking at political stability as number two. And then from there, they also look at uh, the rate at which um, a country is growing. And these are the issues that we should prioritize as a continent for us to be able to attract foreign investments. If I may come in there, uh, so thank you for, for that insight and articulating critical issues which are the basis for investment. You have um, highlighted, amongst others, the, the perceptions from other continents about how Africa is um, eased. And I could not agree with you more. But perhaps maybe the, ne- the needle of negative perception is gradually moving to, uh, towards the positive given the sizable amount of investments 
which have been called in by the likes of Egypt, as you're currently putting out. But if I may bring in the general here, uh, you so uh, make reference to rule of law, political stability, um, as other indicators which enable foreign direct investment. Uh, general, in your view, what is it that African countries need to be enforcing or what is it that African countries have, to, have need to be doing differently to escalate the importance of rule of law and political stability? Let us be very, very realistic. Americans and Chinese and everybody are investing in Democratic Republic of Congo, which has been under the UNP speaking force for the past 60 years. Okay, that tells you something that when investors from abroad want to invest in strategic areas like mining for strategic minerals, they find a way to protect themselves from all sorts of violence happening in those countries, okay? So we've got to be realistic. Secondly, too, when you look at Rwanda, for example, Rwanda is politically stable from abroad. Whether the people in Rwanda like Kagame style or not, it's politically stable, all right? And people are interested in, in Rwanda. Therefore, we need to divide Africa into various, I would say, political, you know, categorization, okay? And secondly, too, we also need to look at the size of, of population of each of these countries in Africa. So if you take Nigeria with nearly 200 million people, that population alone is attractive to an investor. If you take South Africa with more than people going to 60 million, 70 million, that population is attractive to investors. And secondly, too, South Africa is a sophisticated consumer economy. Okay, so all this shouting that Nigeria economy is bigger than South Africa, to me, it doesn't make sense. And obviously, it doesn't make sense because if you go to South Africa and come to Nigeria, industrially, Nigeria is 50 years behind South Africa. Okay, so any investor will go to your face. And what's also happening is this is that to the investor, have you got the skilled labor that I'm looking for? Because no country wants any small stack industry, as they call it now. People want clean industry now to come in. And therefore, you need skilled labor. So where can you find the skilled labor? You know where to find that, okay? Apart from minerals and so on. But what's also important is this. And we Africans have got to tell ourselves, if Africans have stolen so much amount of money and kept the money abroad, and you're asking people from abroad where you have kept your money to come and invest in your country, you need a psychiatric examination. Sincerely, you need a psychiatric examination. The issue also is this is that, if we don't look in domestically, like the Asians do, in terms of business linkages within the continent, we can never, never catch up with everybody, no matter how much direct investment is brought in. And experts will tell you something. Even if you get direct investment, if there's no domestic counterpart to work on that direct investment and create jobs and be able to sustain the impact or the effect of that direct investment, the whole thing will collapse. So what is also important is this to me is this is that Africa, as I said before, must look at the issue, bring your money home. Charity begins at home. Secondly, create business linkages within Africa with our own money, whether stolen or kept abroad, bring them back. And once you do that, then people will come to you. Okay. It's like the case of India, where Rajiv Gandhi was the prime minister, the late Rajiv Gandhi. He went to United States, went to Europe, told the Indians there, we don't want you to come home. At one time, when I was working with the UN, we were looking at the number of millionaires, you know, and in San Francisco alone, there are about 20 Indians who are dollar millionaires. And those people are investing in their own country. 
How many South Africans are investing in South Africa from United States? How many Nigerians are investing in Nigeria from United States? So how many Dangotes do we have in Africa? And Dangotes going across Africa now, establishing cement factories. The same thing with South African companies, okay? Sasson is even investing in the United States of America from South Africa. Are we really sitting down to really do some serious thinking? And your institute of governance, since you're a corporate governance person, needs to organize a series of roundtables to look at some of these issues abroad with the businessmen themselves and with those who have the money abroad. Thank you for, for that insight, which is quite illuminating in so many ways. Um, you have given us a sense of how um, investments do go into risk environments such as DRC and such as, uh, such as um, Rwanda. Um, or even uh, South Sudan for that matter. You are saying to us, capital has got a way of protecting its interest, even though the investment could be seen as risky in those particular areas. And secondly, you're saying to us, the Africans or businesses that are abroad or Africans in this diaspora have to be encouraged to partner with multinationals by taking their money back home, which is quite an interesting nuance, as you put it. Let me bring in here. Why, from a perception point of view, what can be done differently to encourage Africans in diaspora to come and invest back in their own countries? In the same way as uh, the general has indicated that in India, most Indians who are billionaires have been encouraged and are even encouraged to invest in India. So that that might have to do with how those countries have been perceived. What are we doing differently or should we do differently from a perception point of view to encourage those that have, who are abroad, to invest in their own countries. I think let me start by by congratulating or commending the African Union for having declared the African diaspora communities as the sixth official region of the African Union, which means that there's a concerted effort to try to bring them back home to say that um, even if you are stationed in those foreign uh, countries and continents, your loyalty should always be to Africa. We haven't mentioned this, but General William also is an executive director of Pan-African Strategic and Policy Research Group, which is Africans who are here at home, but also Africans who are in the diaspora. And all of us are looking at what contributions we could make to the continent for its own advancement. But the other thing is that we also need to dictate as to in in which sectors should foreign investors uh, put their Mm. money in. We should also discourage a situation where all these other continents are only coming into the continent to extract our resources and they get exported as commodities because those commodities are then beneficiated in their own foreign countries or continents and then we re-import them back into Africa and we even pay higher premiums uh, for them. Now, the problem with that is that uh, it means our commodities are exported to create jobs in those foreign countries. And as a result, our manufacturing capacity is very low on the continent 
and therefore we do have uh, these high levels of, of unemployment, which translate into high levels of poverty and inequality. So we need to say to investors, come in, but you invest in building our manufacturing capacity. The other thing is that we need investors uh, to come in to put resources into building our agricultural capacity because you have Africa owning 60% of the world's arable land. And yet today we are a net importer of food. And if we talk about food security, Africa should, shouldn't be suffering this threat of lack of, uh, of food, but we should be able to say our agricultural competence is good enough for the continent to be able to feed her, her people. So we need to control that. But back to the question of diaspora communities. From my involvement with the Pan-African uh, Strategic and, and Policy Research Group, I realized that there are many Africans in the diaspora who have Africa love at heart, and they are very willing and committed to working with us to try to empower not only our leadership in public office, but also even the private sector, so that we are able to build capacity in the private sector, so that ultimately our people could be able to contribute to growing our economies. Before we come back there, Brasso, just, just to go through, go again on issues that you've raised, which I think are quite important, but we still don't really get a sense of the how-to. We know what's to be done. The how-to is the biggest challenge. Let's take a break. We'll come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Governance. I'm joined by John Mulovi, who is an executive director, as well as uh, at Brainhill Africa, as well as retired Major General Ishola Williams, all the way from Nigeria. We are unpacking the success conditions for country investments and what are the lessons, some of the fastest growing economies in the continent. Before we took that short break, so you've indicated a number of interesting points. First is that Africa must dictate the direction of investment. And I, I could not agree with you more. And secondly, Africa should discourage export of raw, of raw materials, given the fact that when we buy back the commodities which have been created value elsewhere, we are firstly buying it at exorbitant prices, but secondly, we are sustaining those economies by virtue of allowing exports of raw materials. Here's a question as a follow-up on what you indicated about how Africans in diaspora are willing and committed my, my sense is that if we have had a sizable number of Africans in diaspora who are committed, what would be the leverage point which we need, which is missing? What is missing to have a massive scale of Africans who are rich elsewhere, who can come back and commit uh, into the country? We have to solve what I call the number one challenge in Africa. Africans don't trust each other. Africans don't trust each other. Unlike the Asians, we don't trust each other. I've said that. We project that outside too. And the diaspora people see that. They see that we don't trust each other. Even amongst Nigerians, you see, 
Igbo man, Hausa man, Yoruba man, and so on. They don't understand that. And that's a serious challenge. But coming down to what can be done, one Italian academic wrote a paper on how Africa can export to the diaspora. I've been trying to get him so that you can pursue it with a soul on a Zoom roundtable, you know, with people like you and so on coming on that roundtable. Okay. At the same time, what you're also working on, like Saul said, is this. You have to change, you have to amend the Constitutive Act of the African Union to do what? Make all the diaspora countries where there are Africans and African descendants, make them associate members of African Union. That is politically attractive to them. Okay, so, but limited rights and privileges. Okay, so the associate member countries, now they now have a stake. They're coming down to the private sector. Have you heard of the World Trade Center? Have you heard of the World Trade Center? What we need to do is that, can we create, like Sol and I have agreed, create what we call Africana market centers. What do yeah. these market centers do? It will be exactly like the World Trade Center. No political connection, strictly private sector, and working with people in various countries where that market center is established. We've got a paper on that, really, on how to establish that. Okay, so if you can create African market centers, these African market centers, we have centers in every country where there are people of Africa and African descent. And many people of in the diaspora now have decided that they want to call themselves Africans, just like the Asians do. People call themselves black. When United Nations wanted to call the Asians yellow, they kicked against it. You can't color me, you can't make me a color. So most of them are now prepared, are now prepared to call themselves Africans. So if one, A, you can amend the constitution, two, we can work. See, South Africa has the infrastructure to help us build what we want to build as Africa in the diaspora and in the world. But we've got to show the examples first. So if we work with these African trade centers in Jamaica, in Trinidad and Tobago, in Canada, and so on, can you believe what that can be done Instead of all these African Canadian chambers of commerce and things with all the bureaucracy, create trade centers, create market centers, and see how the whole thing will shake up. You've also spoke about a very big item, which I don't know whether you or Saul have a response to it. You're saying Africans don't trust each other. And at the same time, you're saying we need to establish African market centers, especially uh, in, in countries where Africans are across the globe. Africans in diaspora, but how would, how would that be possible? How would that be possible if Africans don't trust each other one, and yet we've got this amazing institution that you are pontificating as an alternative to revival of the continent? If MTN is in Nigeria and MTN is doing well, although there have been one or two things anyway, if MTN is doing well and some other South African companies are doing well, although they have some one or two problems. And there are Nigerian businessmen too in, in South Africa. So at the level of some business, there is some trust, okay? At the level of some business, there is some trust. Where we have problems at the medium and small scale industry, which are the foundation of any economic development of any country. That is where the trust is missing. And mm. what we need to do then, that, that, that's what I said, that South Africa needs to be more dynamic, helping to build what can help Africa to be what it can be? But South Africa is, you know, some sort of looking inward 
to a certain extent. I know you have high employment, which most African countries have, but that high employment cannot be solved by foreign direct investment. It cannot, because we've got to remember something. With the digital infrastructure that is being built all over the world nowadays, if you haven't got to skill manpower, then nobody's going to come to you in the future. If your public service system, which is the nucleus of administration and management of the country under the politician, if that is not investment compliant already for the future digital world, you are not going to get anything. And that is why public investment is so key for you to attract foreign direct investment. Okay? And that is what is going to attract people. But the point is this is that have, have we fulfilled our full potential in Africa? Have we? Let me bring you a song yeah. here on that very interesting point. Um, the general says the foreign direct investment, it's not a, it's not a panacea, so to speak. Uh, it hinges on skills and competencies, which can be driven largely by public investment. So yes. the question is, therefore, so why is the public investment on requisite skills and competencies seems to be lagging behind so that foreign direct investment, when they land, they're able to leverage on already existing skill sets, which are compatible with the investment that is made, whether it's in agriculture, agro-processing, and so on and so forth. What needs to be done differently to pump up the skills and competencies so that foreign direct investments can able to leverage on? Education, uh, if I was to give you an example uh, with South Africa, is in deep crisis. The National Planning Commission that reports into the presidency and is chaired by the president, in two years ago, uh, reviewed our education sector. And they discovered that between year one and year 12 of schooling, there's a, a 40% dropout rate which means that we are in crisis uh, because they also discovered that, in fact, my generation is more educated than the generation of our children. And this could be attributed to the 40% dropout rate. But again, then we also need to be saying governments need to invest more resources into education. Yes, I know in South Africa, we have declared that University education is free for children coming from indigent families. It's commendable, but at the same time, we also needed to say uh, it will be free for as long as they will be acquiring skills in this sector. Like they will be acquiring a, the kind of skill set that the economy uh, requires. For instance, when we're building the Midupi power station, we had to import welders from South Korea. When we have many technical colleges uh, in South Africa that are not developing the kind of skills that the economy need for it to grow. But also going back to the issue of, of perception, the, the African Union came up with a very brilliant brand position statement of the Africa we want. This speaks to our identity as a continent, as a people, to say this is us. It talks to all our internal resources and assets that we need to mobilize to convince the other continents to say, look at us, 
this is what we are doing, including even uh, investments into into education, into developing uh, skills, into building our manufacturing capacity. But at the same time, I'm saying we need to counterbalance this with another brand positioning statement that says the Africa they want, because the Africa they want speaks to the image of Africa as constructed by foreign uh, continents. So it basically says, what are their perceptions of us? And we do know that um, many people have a negative perceptions of Africa. The general has just spoken to us, not even as Africans, not even trusting each other. The same goes to even our consumers not having faith in made in Africa service and product brands. Because there is this uh, annual Brand Africa survey, which was launched in 2010. And when it was launched then, they found that 30% of the most admired top 100 brands in Africa were African. But you come down to last year, the number has come down to 10%, meaning Africans are converting more with foreign brands than with the local brands. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back um, as we gravitate towards the last part of our very interesting conversation. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. Uh, this is our last leg of a very interesting conversation uh, here at Beyond Governments. I am joined by Sol Molobi, who is an executive at Brand Hill Africa, as well as retired Major General Ishola Williams, all the way from Nigeria. We are talking about success conditions uh, for country investments. Before we enter the break, uh, Sol was giving us a, a thought process that emanated from the National Planning Commission, wherein that 40% of South Africans who start who um, 40% of South Africans don't complete uh, schooling. Over and above that, all the major investments that had to happen in the like in the form of uh, the construction of municipal uh, stations had to rely on imported on, on imported uh, skills because you don't our FET colleges and universities at large do not produce skills that are needed. Clearly, these two big items are major. You also made a, a point by stating that. The consumers don't also have a, a brand affinity towards the products and services that are sold in Africa. At the last point, though, any brand has to be associated with quality. And we have to obviously do away with this perception. And this is where uh, communication, in my view, would add value in terms of repositioning the products and services that are produced in Africa and that are of world-class uh, that could be exported throughout. On that note, let me just bring the general as we are uh, you know, gravitating towards the end and say, General, you have made an, a wide range of interesting points around conditions that are palatable for investment, which Africa needs to emulate. We've spoken about countries that is Nigeria, Sudan, Morocco, Tanzania, uh, and so on and so forth that are doing exceptionally well. If you were to advise a policy analyst now, what your advice would be in escalating the good lessons that you have observed in your capacity as a retired general and a business person? 
Let me start by saying what I think about two things that we copy and we copy blindly without thinking seriously about them. And they condition the way we are building our political system, we are building our business, our economic system. One, when you look at Scandinavian countries, Scandinavian countries, the people there are not interested in millionaires. They are not. They are interested in what you are contributing to the welfare of the people of the country. That questions the political system that we are running in Africa today. The president of African countries are semi-gods. They don't answer to anybody except God. You are even trying in South Africa. I'm telling you, I commend the ANC, no matter how bad they are now, but they have removed two presidents, and they may remove another one very soon. Okay? You can't do that in any part of Africa. You cannot. What has been done in South Africa? Which means that there's something wrong with the presidential system of government in Africa. And therefore, we need to start looking at the Scandinavian system, a sort of social socialist welfare system, where they try to build equity in the system. Second point, the Americans are now questioning capitalism, including the big power in the Fortune 500 companies, the roundtable, the billion roundtable in the United States. They are questioning capitalism now, okay? And they are looking at what they call the stakeholder capitalism. Think of the common man, think of the common guy. Now, what is happening in Africa is this is that a foreign direct investor comes in, if he's not partnering with the government, he looks for a millionaire African to partner with, okay? That one becomes more millionaire, more money. How many people benefit from that trickle down? So we've got to change from trickle down to this Scandinavian system in which you are forced to pay higher taxes to the public and to the public post, and the public use that post to look after the people. Absolutely. So that's what we are looking for in Africa right now. If you don't change the system, it's going, to be, it's going to be a very big problem. We cannot solve the problem as you are talking because we need to change the system. There's a need for systemic change. The capitalistic system we follow and the political system we are running with God-like president. Thank you very much for that insight, um, General. Um, so we literally have two minutes uh, to wrap up because we, lit- we are gravitating towards the end. Your part in short, based on what the General has said, can we emulate the Scandinavian countries? Yes. In fact, the gap between the poor and the rich is widening every day, which yes. means that our current economic models are not really working for ordinary men and women in the streets. I know in South Africa there's capital gains tax, but it's it's not doing enough to tax the wealthiest so that uh, ordinary people could benefit from that. I know for many years, and, and I'm not so sure why it hasn't been approved, in South Africa, they have been talking about basic income grant, which will be provided to indigent people beyond the welfare grants that are being afforded to people. But my last one, perhaps, is to share the top 10 variables that investors are looking at before they decide to go into a country. The first one, like I mentioned, is rule of law. Second, political stability. The third one is corruption, which is very prevalent across the continent. Cost of doing business, economic growth rate, macroeconomic stability, taxation, uh, investment promotion and protection agreements, investor incentives, and infrastructure development. For me, the most interesting thing about the last one is that inadequate infrastructure 
could also serve as an incentive to attract investors to come into the country. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Amidi, this has been yet another fascinating and thought-provoking conversation, which I certainly believe would benefit the listener um, who is contemplating to do a business uh, in the continent. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mbele, and also thank you, uh, uh, General uh, Williams, for, for joining us. Okay, thank you very much. Have a good day. You're most welcome. There we are. There we are. That was, um, you know, the Solomon, who is an executive at Brand Hill Africa, as well as Major General Ishola Williams from Nigeria. We were talking about success conditions for the country investments and the lessons that could be learned from some of the fastest growing economies in the continent and, of course, abroad. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it here. Uh, let's do this again in a short while. Shalom. Beyond Governance was brought to you by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision making. 